Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season 2, Episode 6, Giving a Name to the Remains, Part 1. So most of the victims came from an area known as Houston Heights. The neighborhood encompasses some of some of the area inside Houston, but also some of the area inside Pasadena, Texas. In the 1950s, it was a relatively new neighborhood with a collection of fine working class homes with neat lawns, tree-lined streets. In the 70s, the the area became taken over by giant apartment complexes that was split down and then was split down the middle by the eight-lane Beltway 8. The houses began to show its age in the neighborhood did not have the desired appeal that it had before. When the parents reported their boys missing, the police were not concerned or motivated to find them. Children living in the Heights area were considered trash, and it was thought of that they were, majority of these boys came from broken homes. The truth was that many of these kids were good kids, never going farther than to ride their bikes to the neighborhood stores or bowling alleys, playgrounds or parks. No one seemed concerned that a large amount of boys had gone missing, not only from the same neighborhood, but also the same school. None of the friends of the missing were interviewed about the missing because they might have had found out that these kids actually knew the Heights better and some of what was going on there. So one of the issues that comes along with trying to draw trying to figure out exactly how many victims there were by Coral, how many boys were actually involved in this, goes back to the investigation. The investigation goes off of the victims' remains that they found and also the confessions that were made by Brooks and Henley. Other than that, there's not a lot of investigation. They don't go back and look at missing persons reports before start to pull some of those and say, maybe these were possible victims that Brooks and Henley didn't know about. And one of the very confusing things in that um, confession is that Brooks talks about coming to the apartment and interrupting Coral, raping two boys. And that later he talked to Coral and Coral admitted that he had killed those two boys. But who those boys are, where their bodies were located, what happened to them never seems to come out in the confession. And from what I can see, they don't ever seem to be identified. Right. And you know, and that just might simply be because Brooks doesn't know. And Coral's dead at this point. Right. Right. So, unfortunately, but it kind of, yeah, it kind of stirs on a little bit of what's going on now. You have Texas Equisearch who's done some searches trying to figure out if there were other victims, you know, and where those victims may have been buried. The other thing that happens is in the boat shed, when they take the bodies out of the boat shed, you know, the, 
the original thought was that they recovered all of the remains and all of the bones there. But just recently, as I've been starting to go through the autopsy reports for the remains, you do find that when they recovered these remains, there were actually bones that are missing. Right. You know, that was something um, that you shared with me this week were the autopsy reports. And when you first sent them to me, I looked at you and I was like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Right. And you're like, these are all and, and maybe we can share these. We'll uh-huh. have to see if we can. Um, and I was like, well, what am I looking at? Because I always said to you, how do we know that all the bones got out of there? There's probably still bones in there. There's probably still some sort of evidence still in the dirt. I mean, there's right. no way to. I mean, there's no physical way that you could probably get everything. I mean, we can't, we have to be realistic, right? But it does make you wonder. So I think one of the issues and the problems here is the type of search that was done. So when, when you're doing a search now, a more modern search would have involved um, bringing in some um, sifting equipment, sifting through the dirt, making sure that you recovered all of the uh, bones, getting those bones identified and matched up to any of the remains that were skeletonized and making sure that you had most, or if not most of it, all of it. At that point, when they're taking those remains out of the boat shed, they did bring in an anthropologist, but again, it still wasn't quite the type of search that I think you would see nowadays. Well, sure. And they were still learning at that point. I mean, right. There's a lot more learned since the seventies. Yes. There's a, there's a lot more that can be done. So when you're missing what tends to be these smaller bones, when you have the majority of these bodies, I don't think that the police felt it was necessary to go back in and find all of them you know i think they figured since they had you know the skeletons and there's a 90 95 percent of the remains are there they're figuring it's not something that they have to go back in and delve into and get all of these bones plus there is the possibility that some of that was taken off by small rodent activity so in your personal opinion do you think it's relative or important to even get those small bones like would it have made a difference i guess so i think at this point in time it wouldn't i don't think it would make a difference we do know that there at least in the beginning were some bones that did not match up to any of the remains that they had Later on, they come back, they do some DNA testing. Um, They have associated some of those bones with remains that um, have been buried. Some of them, I still question whether or not they actually have some unidentified bones. Um, And maybe bones did get buried with, with the wrong individual also, which is a possibility too. Without having a large skeletal or remains or at least the skull i don't know that you're gonna that you're really missing that much i think that it's more a misidentification of bones mm-hmm. um but we kind of saw that in last season with the miller case right right so i mean he definitely went back in and questioned right them about that so that's why i was kind of asking yeah again it's you know it's 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 not necessarily to put blame on the law enforcement. It's just a different way of doing mm-hmm. things. Um, we do 
probably we can say that there are ne not necessarily remains in the boat shed because they did dig around, dig down to a certain level. They took that dirt and soil out and then they put in new topsoil in there. When they took that out of that area, um, and disposed of it is probably where you have some of that small uh, bones and remains mm -hmm. that got because they weren't necessarily like sifting all that soil, right? right? Okay. Yeah, you're talking about uh, bones that are missing is generally small, very small bones mm -hmm. that are missing. Um, but then it does kind of answer the question of what you get into next, which is some misidentifications, and so we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So Jeffrey Allen Cohen is what is considered Coral's first victim. Again, going back to questioning whether or not this would actually be Coral's first victim, but of record, Jeffrey Allen Cohen is Coral's first victim. Jeffrey was an 18-year-old freshman at the University of Texas. His father was Harry. His mother was Sarah. He and another student decided to hitchhike home to Houston to visit their parents. Jeffrey was dropped off alone in Houston in order to catch another ride. And so there's, there's different accounts of who picks him up. There's one account that says Brooks offered him a ride, said we could stop by a friend's house, smoke some weed, and then I'll take you home. The other account is that Coral probably picked um Jeffrey up, brought him to his house, probably with the same idea. We can smoke some weed, hang out for a little while, and then I'll take you home. But he just kind of like the ruse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He disappears on September 25th, 1970. Um, and after that, nobody knows what happened to him. His parents again file a report saying he was hitchhiking. Uh, the friend who was hitchhiking with him gets interviewed, but really there's no not a whole lot to that report, you know, just the information of here's where he was dropped off. He was expecting, you know, that he could pick up another ride and it goes cold with that. Um, it's a difficult thing to say that police could have done more. Um, you're again talking about a time when you're not looking at cameras on every street corner. He doesn't have a cell phone you can track. Um, and hitchhiking was quite common, quite common. Mm -hmm. Um, he was not, from what I can see in the report that I have read about him, not identified as a runaway. But um, but you think that's because of his age? I think because they knew he was hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. So, um, and and I think that when cops kind of looked at the situation that he was hitchhiking and, and the report that was given, they pretty much said probably something, some harm had come to him. Mm -hmm. And his parents seemed to probably have gone with that same belief that's, some harm had come to him in that. Um, so nothing's known about what happened to him until August 10th of 1973, when Brooks led police to his body on High Island. His body was found under a large rock. He had been strangled, placed in plastic sheeting, and uh, buried. There... 
from what they said, there were obvious signs of sexual assault. I'm not real sure exactly what those obvious signs of sexual assault were, because again, this is, we're talking about a skeletization, um, or at least partly skeletonized, but some of that may be that he was bound. And mm. so that may be what, what police are saying is the obvious sign of sexual assault. He had been asphyxiated and had a rag stuffed in his mouth too. So that's another thing that they do come out and say with uh, him. Okay, so the next victims we're going to talk about is James Glass and Danny Yates. On December 15th, 1970, David Owen Brooks went through with this deal that he had made with the devil to lure two boys, James and Danny, who had been attending a religious rally in Houston Heights to Coral's Yorktown apartment on Columbia. James and Danny were both 14 years old and they were from the area of Houston called Spring Branch. James Glass and Brooks had been friends and Brooks had taken James to Coral's apartment before both boys were taken there. They were beaten, raped, and strangled, placed in the boat shed that Coral rented on November 17th. And obviously Coral has rented this boat shed for, the, for this purpose. In his confession, David Owenbrook states that he was present when a boy named Glass was killed. He attempted to take Glass home, but Glass wanted to go back to Coral's, and so he took him back. So... This statement about trying to take Glass home, but then taking Glass back, um, it seems to downplay his involvement in this. And part of that is pretty confusing because he doesn't really mention what had happened to Danny. Like right. why he's taking Glass and not taking um, Danny Yates home. It just makes me kind of think, <clears throat> like questioning in my head, was he already gone? Like, was he already passed? Uh -huh. You know? And that's why? Well, and one of the things that I kind of thought about was that when he talks about, you know, he had taken James home, James Glass home, and then, but James Glass wanted to go back, is I think he's kind of talking about that earlier incident where James Glass, he had taken him there before, and then he had you know, brought him home. And, um, but then, you know, when he approached him this next time and said, Hey, do you want to go out there? You know, James did want to go back, kind of putting that blame a little bit on James glass for what happened. Mm -hmm. But from what we can tell the earlier time when James glass had been at the apartment, nothing actually had happened. And so he would have thought it was kind of a fun place to hang out. The other thing that we do know is that there were teenagers in and out of this apartment that nothing happened to. And so that part kind of blows my mind. Every time I think about that, it's like how many people were lucky, I guess, right. you know, who didn't become victims of this guy, you know, like that's always something I think about. Well, and I think it's always that way. Because you don't hear a lot from them. Right. But it's that, it's almost like a cover, you know, mm -hmm. look, you know, if somebody comes and asks you, you mm -hmm. can be like, well, nothing happens here. Talk to so-and-so he went home. So-and-so went home, you know? And so if you have these group of people who are always constantly coming in and out of there and the police start to look at you, you could point to a lot of people who didn't and thinking that maybe they wouldn't, suspect you mm -hmm. you know that it is a safe place for boys to hang but out but then you also think like there must have been something about 
the unfortunate select that he did take a life right. to. Right? You know, it's kind of weird. Sometimes I just think it's timing. You know, he just, that day, <laughs> that time. He had a bad day. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Not for sure, though. Yeah. But, you know? or it's just that he knew nobody else was coming in and out of there the opportunity to do it because nobody might be looking for these two for a while or he may have just not had the need for it at that time uh -huh. too. you know like well, the one thing we do know about serial killers is often filling a need yeah. so if they have already like hate to say it like this but taking a victim they may not need that for another two or three yeah. weeks you know so well and he but these boys think they're getting paid to bring boys over right. and they're just not, I mean, they're lucky, yeah. I guess. I don't know. So, um, what we do know is that the parents did report them missing right away because there was an attempt to pick them up at the, um, at the rally and they weren't located there. So, you know, parents did pick them up. Um, from what I can tell, James Glass and Danny Yates were considered runaways. So James Glass and Danny Yates are considered victims two and three. Then victims three and four would be the um, Waldorf brothers. So Donald and Jerry Lee Waldorf. In Brooks's confession, he says, I also remember two boys were killed at the place one apartments on magnum they were brothers their father worked next door where they were building some more apartments i was present when dean killed them by strangling them but i did not participate i believe i was present when they were buried but i do not remember brooks may have actually taken a more active role in their uh murder than he would like anyone to believe both boys were actually shot in the head with a 22 caliber pistol okay wait i have to stop here for just a second because i know and we actually have not discussed this at all uh -huh. but they're shot in the head they're shot in the head right right where is this crime scene at is this in the apartments like or we don't know like no as far as we know it is in the apartments <laughs> that yeah. has to be incredibly gruesome like it has to be so Blood splatter is going to be everywhere what do you i mean like but he, he moves right he keeps moving around he does this keep, is not in the house you he know? does keep he does keep moving around uh is, but i think you know let me put my very very amateur uh yeah. hat on um the caliber of this pistol is a 22 caliber pistol so this is a very small gun and I think when we're used to watching all these TV shows and, and there's this big, huge, you know, kind of, it's not a nine millimeter. Okay. Cause that's the most common, right? Right. So this is a, this is a small, I think they used to call them like a Saturday night special. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so this is a very small bullet and the damage that you're looking at would not have been what you're looking at on these gruesome crimes. Okay but we're on tv right right okay 
but still. And there's some bleeding out going on. There's there, some stuff going on. There. Right. So, but if we remember back some of what we talked about in the, um, where Coral was killed is that in that room where he's killed, they had actually had a bunch of plastic sheeting already put down. So they're doing a lot to prevent that ahead of time. So that cleanup, basically they're taking that plastic sheeting and wrapping it's like these. like painting, I guess. To them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, okay. they're, they're preparing ahead of time and, you know, you have to think to yourself how absolutely frightening these had to be for these children walking into that room and seeing that and, they and realizing be, that probably they're going think? to be killed. Yeah. You think in the seventies, I know now there's a lot more exposure on those. I think there is a lot more exposure on that, but I mean, at I that still like, uh, so they, know? they've managed to get you into handcuffs and you know, and then you're laying there strapped to this board, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's, it's so hard to even think about what these kids were going through. It absolutely is. Um, and so then they're using that plastic sheeting to do that. But what we also do know is that there was talk that one apartment complex did actually have a, a bullet hole in a, uh, in a, mm-hmm. in a door. Mm-hmm. So we know that things did happen at different apartment complexes that were left behind. Um, but I guess, you know, for maintenance purposes and that type of thing, people weren't looking at it quite like what happened here. But I think they did a very good job of trying to keep, prevent people from knowing what had happened. Sure. Um, so Donald and Jerry were actually walking home from a friend's house or possible from the bowling alley. There's, again, this is one of those cases where there's like con- some conflicting stories about where exactly they were on January 30th, 1971 when the family of and then they disappear so their father calls says you know his sons are missing uh does a police report and that's pretty much about the follow-through that you get on the police report and um those police reports have been uh published so i've read through it there's there's very little information there just to kind of the story that you know his young sons are missing um so when the family of the brothers is contacted and told that police have located the remains of their uh, two boys, Everett Waldorf, who is the father, drove from Atlanta in order to identify his sons. Now, there's a bit, he, Everett really gets kind of this bad reputation that goes on back and forth. So I want to kind of clear up a little bit about this Atlanta part of it. So Everett's, this family, Donald and Jerry's family, was known to live in both the Atlanta area and to the, and the Houston area. So basically what's happening is the father is going back and forth between Atlanta and Houston, wherever he can find employment. Um, and so he, um, the boys were actually born in the Atlanta area, then came down to the Houston area, then back to the Atlanta area, and then back to the Houston area. Um, And so when he reports his son's missing, he still has to work. And so he does go to the Atlanta area where he has family in order to work. Um, But so he comes down here in order to 
identify his sons, to find them, to take them home. And Mr. Waldorf, he comes out publicly against the police department, the efforts that the police department gave on trying to find his sons. And he criticizes the police department. The police department then comes back publicly and attacks him by stating that the father waited a whole 10 days before reporting his son's missing. And then he only inquired in their case uh, twice. When you read this initial report, you do see that the father did inquire into the case twice. And then you do find that it does seem like his mother, the mother also inquired into the case at one point in time. Sadly, this would only become worse for the Walder family. So um, when he arrives at the medical examiner's office to try to find out about his sons, he's asked a series of questions about what clothing were they wearing when they were missing, describe their height, their weight, any dental filling. And one of the things, and we'll definitely get a lot more into this in future episodes, the difficulty on identifying many of these children were the fact that there was very little dental activity. You know, they're young. So there's not, there's not a whole lot of dental records for them. Um, they're also a little bit poor of some of the families. And so dental care may have been very expensive for them. And it would have only maybe been done if there was an emergency. Um, so he describing that the medical examiner states that he identifies a belt buckle and a shirt that were found with the bones that belonged to his son. They were some of the first bodies to be identified that came out of there. The Harris, the Harris County's medical officers made an identification uh, based off this information, even though most of the bodies, some of them were found naked with clothes tossed into the mass grave. When it came time for the remains to be released and buried in Atlanta, um, it's found out the remains are released. They go back, they bury them in Atlanta in a family grave plot there. And it's a few weeks later when the medical examiner's office realized that there's been a mistake, that the remains that were released were actually those of Gregory Winkle and David Hillgrass. Of the four bodies, those four bodies were actually found all pretty close proximity to each other in the um, boat shed. And so when the father comes out and basically comes back to the medical examiner's office and, you know, is, is upset of how could this have possibly happened, the medical examiner's office basically goes back and says that it's the father who's to blame for this. Um, and kind of puts it on him. If he wouldn't have identified these remains as being his sons, they wouldn't have released them to him. Way to victimize the victim. Right. And like he had any skill in identifying remains whatsoever. Um, and I mean, again, bones. right. And, and oh, that looks like my kid's femur. Like, how are you going to know that? So, well, and he's identifying clothing, you know, um, and from what we can also tell, the clothing uh, was similar, but you're also identifying clothing, 
you know, from your two sons that you have lost. I mean, he has lost almost his entire family at this point. Um, but I mean, clothes are popular too. I right. mean, think about my kids when we go shopping at the mall, just say the right. mall forever 21. How many other girls in the neighborhood are buying that same clothes? You know? Well, and you're talking about being able to like say it was a forever 21 shirt. I mean, at that point in time, he's probably like, you know, no, it's like a red, red and white striped shirt, you know? you know? Um, and you're also looking at, well, he did own a shirt like that, you know? Um, and again, we're and not looking for closure. Right. And there's not a hundred percent guarantee that these clothes were, these bodies were in close proximity to each other. And so there's a possibility that this clothing was intermingled with this in anyway. Right. So then what kind of happens here gets a little bit worse. So you have the two boys who are buried in Atlanta and you have two more sets of remains that are now identified. Um, and those sets of remains are, are sitting in Houston. So the medical examiner's office basically goes back to the family and says, you need to make arrangements to get these remains back. Well, the family of the Walders is like, okay, yeah, you know, you should come to Atlanta and get those remains. And then we want to bury our sons, you know, that we've already paid to bury. Um, and this gets to be a back and forth again, the medical examiner's office agrees to come up with some funding and then they pull back. And so the families of Hildegrasse and, um, and the Waldorfs and um, all of these families have to get together. They actually sue Harris County in order to have this done. Um, Harris County Medical Examiner's Office comes back in and again blames these family members for the misidentification, kind of lays it at their feet. It wouldn't have been their, it's their fault. They should be financially responsible. And the judge actually rules that the families are financially responsible for figuring this out. That's crazy to me. That's crazy to me. You know, because I worked in victims' rights for so long, this is just one of those things where I'm constantly, like, in back of my head saying, what about victims' rights? And then, you know, you have to remind yourself that there really were no victims' rights back then. And so these families didn't really have any recourse. Um, It is laid at their feet. Um, what does come forward is there is a funeral home in, um, in Houston that comes forward and they actually step forward. Can we be honest? How expensive is that? At that, at that point in time, um, I mean, like, honestly, though, if you're just talking about transporting remains, like, so they would have had to go and reopen those graves. So it would have been this probably already reopened. No, so they were not reopened. Oh. No, so when they what they did is they have the two sets of remains sitting in Harris County that have not been buried and have not been released, which are now identified as the brothers. Got you. Okay. And then they have the two sets of remains that were released to Atlanta that are buried. So they would have had to pay somebody to come out there and, and disinter the family. And then also the transportation back to Houston and then the transportation again, which they had already paid for all of that to have their, for a family who really didn't have any funds whatsoever, this would have been incredibly expensive. No, I get that. It's just, it's crazy to me too, because at the time that they did identify 
the original remains uh -huh. as being their sons. There was nothing to test that. No, there's so you there's know? so there was right. no reason for them not to believe that they couldn't. No, so the family so that's so the family up. members did not have any reason to believe uh -huh. that those were not their their exactly. remains uh, until you bring about the actual remains that. Right. Now you want me to, like, first deal with that. Well, and emotionally I emotionally too, right? And the cost for them burying them in the first place probably would have been quite a bit too. They, they would have that family would have been stretched at finding the funds for that also. Um, so, what we do know is that a good Samaritan um, funeral home in Houston does actually come forward and take care of doing this for both families. I mean, for actually it's three sets of families at that point. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and this does get sorted out, but it just kind of, this whole incident goes to show you several different things. One, how quickly they felt like there was a need to put a pin in this case and get yeah, through it. That's my point. So, yeah. You know, that's my point. It's you didn't have anything to prove otherwise, and now that you do, it's my problem to deal with. Uh -huh. You know, that's not okay. You know, and I mean, it just for these families who had already been victimized so much by this system, this is incredibly devastating. Mm -hmm. Um, so. Our future episodes, we're going to continue to look at the victims in these cases and um, talk more about what has happened, what happened to them, what happened to their family members too. So thank you. Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners. So please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayous. You can always email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcasts.